What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. April is a month that is dedicated to the chronic invisible illness that is irritable bowel syndrome. About 10 to 15% of the world's population is believed to have IBS, and this is only an estimate as so many are either suffering in silence or perhaps misdiagnosed. As an IBS sufferer myself, I struggled with horrendous gut symptoms ranging from diarrhea, stomach pain, to bloating and tummy cramps. I also suffer from anxiety, so I have been there. I've been told that it's all in my head, and I've had my social life hugely impacted. So if you're listening to today's episode as a sufferer of IBS, we are here to tell you that you can beat the uncomfortable bloat. You can find relief and enjoy eating out without fear. You can live a life no longer controlled by your symptoms. You can know your exact triggers, and you can restore your health. Enjoy today's episode. We are in your ears again this week, and today we are unpacking all the layers of irritable bowel syndrome, and we are going to try our best to give you the most comprehensive, condensed, 101 rundown of what you need to know. But first, Dad, how was your week? I'm okay. Week is not very busy these days, but uh, last week it was very busy because I was on a holiday. You know that I was in uh, Australia. Yeah, that's right. When I came, it was very busy. And uh, for the last two weeks, before I left to Australia, I diagnosed two cases of IBS. How many patients have you seen in the last two weeks? So did you diagnose more people with IBS? The last two weeks, in one clinic, in one week, I saw about 20 patients. And the other clinic, about 15. So a lot of patients. But today, I had seen two very interesting cases Shall I tell you about the first case? Or? Yeah, go ahead. I think uh, a lot of people can probably relate. Yeah. Well, today I've seen one patient. She's uh, Russian. She's 40. She's single. Uh, she's got very good position. She eats healthy. Has long-standing history of abdominal bloating and abdominal pain, diarrhea and constipation alternating, at least once or twice a week for the last three or six months. But however, her, her, this symptoms has been there for many years when she was young. And I, she has seen many doctors in, in different countries. I asked her, anybody told you the specific diagnosis or something? She said, no, no, these days give me indication and tell me just to keep away from the food you are suffering or give you problems here. She was referred to me because the internist found occult blood in her stool. What does occult blood mean? So there was just blood in her stool. Which is not seen visible. by the naked eye. Yeah, it's okay. not visible. And right, he traces didn't of blood in the poo. Yeah, in the poo, that's right. And for this case, for example, it is, you, you know the uh, criteria of irritable bowel syndrome? It fits that's with her. Wrong. Okay. 
we'll yeah, talk we'll, about that in a second. We'll talk about, yeah. However, she gives history as well before I, 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 I go to the analyzing this case that she's got problems with gluten containing food, but her she can eat dairy product, whatever, without no problems. To analyze this case, she fits the irritable bowel syndrome criteria. However, she's got one of the red flags. Red flags. Okay. Red flags, and she's got some problems with gluten. So I can't categorize her as irritable bowel syndrome just like that. We have to rule out things before we tell her. You that confirm that diagnosis. Got... Yeah, but that's why we'll we'll talk about the diagnosis later. But it's it's nice case that nobody advise her to to do test or give her a definite diagnosis. That's why. But I, is, isn't that very common with IBS though? That a lot of the times people just they've never come to a conclusive diagnosis. Yes, this is. I find it common. very common. Okay. It's common, yeah, but. The other thing, which is, they told her that she has nothing and that she's okay, but just keep away from the food gives, that gives her problems. In this case, we have to tell her that we are going for so one, two, three, to reach out the diagnosis. We have to rule out celiac disease. We have to rule out gluten intropathy. We talked with her about the SIBO, which is intestinal. intestinal. Overgrowth. Intestinal, yeah. Bacterial overgrowth. Okay. So after ruling out this thing, we can categorize either IBS plus something or IBS alone. And because she told me that she has some bleeding when she's constipated. So this, this is one case. So we'll, I'll go through her. You to, to so you still have, I was going to say, you still, so did you just have your first um, consult with her today? Yeah, just today, yeah, the first consult. Yeah, that's why okay. I give her all these options and I told her one, two, three to reach a, a different diagnosis. Okay. All right. And what was your second case about? Second case, another interesting case. She's French and since childhood, she's got abdominal pain on and off, on and off. And you know, in, in France, the they live on gluten, <laughs> the best yep. pastries and the best best coronavirus yes, I told you about. And she's yep. having healthy food. She's forty. Mm -hmm. She's single, and her symptoms: abdominal pain and bloating. There is no loose motion or there is no constipation. So she has so regular bowel movements. Regular she goes bowel to the movements regularly. Okay. Yeah. So this is not rule out IBS, but. We have to think of other things before calling her IBS. Well, most likely she might not have IBS at all. What happened okay. when she came? Uh, well, yeah, when she came to Dubai, two thousand, okay. yeah, two thousand nine. Yeah, she has abdominal pain and this it was increasing, so she went to a dietitian. Not you, of course. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and she told her. I think you have IBS, and I think you have uh, lactose intolerance, and I think you have gluten problem. So what you have to do, keep away from lactose and keep away from gluten, you will be okay. She told her, uh, is it investigation needed? No, no, no. I think we'll be all right. So she did so, and she was very happy. Her life changed, and she was having no, almost normal life. But recently, she was not on strict gluten-free diet. So for the last few months, she started having pain again on and off, on and off. So in this case, 
what would you do? So what sort of tests are you looking, are you looking to start investigating? She was referred to me from the internist because of one of the serology for celiac disease positive and her calprotectin okay. in the stool is a little bit high. So the serology meant they've done a, a celiac screen through the blood. Celiac screen, yeah, for blood the blood test. Yeah. And one yes, of it was positive. Right. Yeah. And then in terms of calprotectin, that's an inflammatory marker in the stool, correct? So that is something that you can oh, yeah. do, you can check by a stool can, test. And sometimes it is a bit positive with celiac disease, but uh, it's not very high, it's 88. The, uh, the cutoff is 50, so I don't so be very worried about elevated. it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a case as well. We have, to, this is a case of celiac disease. So the well, next step. Well, it's unconfirmed. I'm, you still have to. Yeah, yeah. Ma, that's why. Ma, that's what I'm telling you that I booked her for endoscopy for confirmation and I explained yeah. to her everything, but I asked her to be on normal diet as normal as she can. Uh, she told me I, I got problems with the, with normal diet. I told, I told her it's okay. Just keep normal diet till we do the endoscopy and give uh, definite diagnosis, and then we'll be in very, very strict diet, gluten free. Afterwards, okay. so it's very interesting. So you, you're, you're suspect. So she was potentially misdiagnosed by a dietitian who should not have, obviously, uh, the authority to make that diagnosis, nor the experience, nor the scope of practice. Um, That's true. Let's then let's talk about irritable bowel syndrome. So if, if IBS is very, very common, what is the actual definition of irritable bowel syndrome? And what are the potential causes? As a gastroenterologist, how would you define it? The, the classical definition of irritable bowel syndrome that is a chronic functional disorder of the colon and gastrointestinal tract, not only the colon. Previously known as... Uh, Mucus colitis, because some patients just produce mucus, uh, spastic colon, and irritable colon as well. So, but now it's the IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. I think you told me one day that you have another definition, isn't it? Well, I always say that IBS is a glitch in how your brain and your gut are communicating. Because you mentioned functional gut disorder, and functional disorders are actually being renamed now to disorders of the gut brain axis where anatomically nothing is wrong so everything is normal but because of this glitch in, in, in the signaling it impacts the functioning of a person's uh, digestive tract so this is why they would end up with i mean you call this spastic colon but i would say it's just sort of stomach pain or tummy cramps diarrhea bloating or a little bit of both yeah well this is the criteria of ibs which we'll talk about it in details later do we know exactly what causes IBS? Yeah, well, the, the short answer, we don't know. But there well, is that's a long factor. answer. The long answer is theories, and the, uh, there is some factors that play a role of uh, inducing the irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. And first one is mus muscle contraction in the intestine. You know, it's the wall of the intestine are lined with layers of muscle okay, that contract as the uh, move, the food moves through the bowel, mm -hmm. digestive tract, all of them. So uh, the contractions are stronger and last longer than usual. So it will cause gas, bloating, and diarrhea. But if the if the weak contractions can slow the food passage through the colon and through the digestive system, 
it will cause hard stools, dry stools, and constipation. That's one factor. Mm -hmm. The other factor is the nervous system. We just said gut brain, that, gut, gut brain access is signaling. Yeah. You know, why, there is a problem. Why in, short, the, in short, poor coordinated signal between the brain and the intestine can result in pain, diarrhea, or constipation. And I think you have done uh, some research on, uh, about this gut brain axis. So later you can talk about it yourself later on. Is that? Yeah, okay. I mean, this is something that I, I talk about all the time, but it's also in the book. So I, I, I keep uh, referring people to the book that's coming out next month. But anyway, we don't want to talk about the book now. <laughs> you already did. <laughs> <laughs> well, shameless marketing. All right. Yeah, no, congratulations. Anyway. anyway, we have to attend the launch. Thanks, Dad. Right. Going back to the gut brain act. I mean, in IBS, there's this, as I said, I mean, just like you mentioned, there's this altered signaling and that causes the gut muscle contractions to either contract too fast or too slow. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing is with hypersensitivity. So your threshold to pain becomes much, is very low. So you're more sensitive to, to the slightest bloat or stomach cramp. That's true. The other factor which I can give you problem with IBS is severe infection or uh, gastroenteritis. We noticed that symptoms of IBS can occur about maybe six months after an attack of severe gastroenteritis, which might be bacteria or viral. Also, that's not immediate. Yeah. So it can actually yeah. last six months after an yeah, infection. Yeah, no, no, not immediate. No, at least maybe that's why you have to ask the patient, did they have got uh, gastroenteritis in the past, about six months ago or something, if they suffer from symptoms of uh, IBS. Mm -hmm. Another factor is the uh, early life stress, especially people who've got stress events when they are in childhood. They tend to have more symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, the other factor which is very important and recent is the change in the microbiota of the digestive system. And, so this uh, is maybe this is maybe where where this whole term dysbiosis comes in, or yeah. let's say poor microbial diversity when we don't have sort of like when it, when you have an imbalance in in the gut in microbes. The bacteria, yeah, in the gut microbes. We did some research for this as well. Did you? Yes, yes, I have done. Oh, okay. <laughs> this so, is, this is what... <laughs> so maybe you can can talk more details about this. Oh, this is mainly the codes or the. Not the cause, it's the... So it's a combination infection. of causes. It's not one cause. It's been it's, possibly it's a combination yeah. of causes. It's multifactorial. Multif that's true, yeah. That's true, yeah. And by, by the way, the stress, it's not a direct cause of IBS. It might provoke symptoms, but it is not the cause of irritable bowel syndrome. So what are the different types of irritable bowel syndrome? You mentioned, you know, diarrhea, constipation... Well, I can introduce myself as someone who was previously known as IBSD. So I had IBS with diarrhea. So tell me what, what's your problem? Well, I was, how old was I? I think I was 23 or 24 after moving back to Dubai from Australia. And I remember having a really bad stomach infection, I probably picked up gastroenteritis. And then not you, but another doctor prescribed a combination of antibiotics for me to take. And I did. 
And I noticed that a few months after that, I wasn't able to eat the same way I did. And while I was working in the hospital at that time, so the stress levels were extremely high. Um, I just noticed that I had diarrhea multiple times a day. And that was ongoing for about six months, nonstop with stomach pain. I would go to the bathroom about four to 10 times a day. I still remember certain um, instances when I was at the hospital with a patient and mid consult, I started sweating and I couldn't talk anymore. And I just went pale and she just looked at me asking if I was okay. And I was like, I'm so sorry, but I really have to go. And I just ran out of the clinic straight to the bathroom. I mean, I was very close with the nurses, so they, they knew I was, I was struggling and I couldn't get out of the bathroom. I was there for almost half an hour and I had to call the nurse and she sort of sent me down to emergency just to sort of rehydrate again because i was extremely dehydrated but long story right. short i think my main issue was diarrhea high stress levels i was extremely anxious i was just not happy with a lot of things going on i was dealing or i dealed with a gut infection and i came to you because i, I remember answers. Yeah. <laughs> i remember this day I, even i went to you i came to you in the hospital emergency Yes. Exactly. Oh my God. Yes. I remember yes. that one. So I, I think they wanted to rule out diverticular. I still remember you asking them like for all the blood work and things like that. And then you told them, no, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll deal with it afterwards. Before that, you remember when I did endoscopy for you? That was afterwards. After episode, I think, or? yeah, I was afterwards. Actually, before we did the endoscopy, you asked me to do a stool test because I thought I had blood in my poo. I still yeah. remember calling you crying. <laughs> I've got but you didn't have any. Well, it was very pink or red, but I completely forgot that I might have consumed some beetroot. So yeah. I wasn't quite sure, but I remember having a complete nervous breakdown and mom taking me to your clinic. So you requested a, a stool test to check for, I can't remember what you were checking for, parasites and I assume calprotectin as well. And then long story short, you sent me for an abdominal ultrasound as well, which your friend performed. Yeah. And that was fine. And then he said, right, we need to do an endoscopy. And then I said, you will do it. <laughs> yeah, it was very stressful for me to do the endoscopy for you. But uh, you said you have to do it yourself. Otherwise, you will not do it. So that's true. Anyway, it was okay, mild gastritis. And when I took biopsy from the second part of the duodenum, after, you know, this, the part of yeah. the stomach. And at that time, we could diagnose uh, lactose intolerance. And yeah, I so I was then positive you, for that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. But then I think you told me, you, you gave me the diagnosis of IBS a, f a few months after. It wasn't yeah. straight away. Yeah, but just I went to rule out everything. It's lactose intolerance plus uh, irritable bowel syndrome. So, so basically to our listeners, this was my story. This is how I ended up getting some sort of diagnosis. So I was diarrhea-predominant IBS. Yeah, you are... By the way, any patient comes to me, I ask about the poo and I ask about uh, what's the the consistency and I show him, you know, what's Bristol, uh, Bristol, the Bristol stool chart, yeah. yes. Bristol stool chart. I got it in my mobile and I show it to this, so I'll tell him accordingly, either type 1, which is, uh, type 1 and 2 is constipation type 
six and four diarrhea and uh, six, six and seven six, seven diarrhea three, three and four, four are the ideal normally so we have type one which is uh, predominant constipation and the other one is predominantly diarrhea we got next type ibs which is our case this morning and sometimes you got ibs unclassified and the patient fits diagnostic criteria of IBS, but cannot be accurately categorized in one of the other subtypes that the one we talked about, which is the types okay. of IBS. I mean, wh why don't you think it's a process of elimination? So how would because, you diagnose I'll, I'll tell you something, Jan. If you know what's the differential diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, about 10, 15 cases. So, so if, if I do by elimination, I'll do everything. I do coronoscopy, endoscopy, uh, hydrogen breath test, everything. The diagnosis is different now, they, it, which, which is very important to have positive diagnosis for the patient. You know, to tell him that you have an IBS, not just tell him the, I'll do this, this, this. And if all negative, which is, is almost wrong now. So, right. because IBS is specific conditioning. We have to be right. confident when we diagnose it based on what a good understanding of the symptoms, history, physical examination, absence of alarm signs, and I'll tell you about it. And we use something called the lower Rome criteria. We are now reached Rome criteria for. In short, Rome criteria have to diagnose IBS. They said it is symptoms of abdominal pain, change of the bowel habits, and consistency of the bowel. The abdominal pain should and must be present for the past three months, and these symptoms occur once a week, at least once a week for the last three months, and this is started at least six months ago. So when I see patient like this patient in the morning, it yeah. fits Room criteria has got abdominal pain with alternate bowel habits, which she's got mixed type. She's got constipation alternating with dairy. But of course, as I told you, that we have to rule out the other okay, things so. because. So, this is the symptoms, fits patient as a diagnosis. Okay, so I have confidence that may, this patient may be having an IBS. Okay, so I go what else to rule out the flag. The red flag, red so flag. the alarm signs. Okay. Alarm signs or symptoms of GI bleeding, gastrointestinal bleeding, unexpected iron deficiency anemia is very, very important. Yes, you mentioned that, I think, in the first episode, yeah. too. Yes, yeah. unintentional weight loss. If, when I examine the patient, if I feel any mass or, or lymph nodes. What does that mean? Some, so any lumps? Any lumps in the stomach or abdomen down there, or, or lymph nodes in the axilla or abdo or groins. This is red flag. The onset at the age of 50 or more, you have to be care very careful to diagnose patient at this age. Family history of colon cancer, the another one. And the important thing as well is the acute or sudden onset of the symptoms. And you don't have patient coming for one month history of abdominal pain and bloating and uh, symptoms fits with IBS, but for the last short period and never happened before. So we have to be careful. This is the red flag.
if all of this, okay, I go to test the investigations. I do the minimal important investigations. I do blood test and stool test. The blood test, I'll do a full blood count to rule any anemia. I have to rule out celiac disease. So I have to screen. Is that when you for screen for your antibodies? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I myself do thyroid function test. Because, you know, if hyperthyroid, you get diarrhea, hypothyroid, you get constipation. So, and this is sometimes missed. So I usually do a TSH thyroid function test. Well, that's interesting because we now know that there's a um, a gut thyroid axis. And this is why sometimes, for example, if someone with hypothyroidism can actually end up with celiac disease, um, both which this, are especially uh, Hashimoto's, so autoimmune diseases. <clears throat> Uh, we, we have to know that our body is one unit. Every unit will affect the other. So we have to be to put this in mind. Yeah. Okay, so once yeah. all the blood work, everything uh, stool returns. Test. And the stool, stool test, test as well. Stool test, I do a stool for uh, ochre blood with the hidden blood. The yeah, blood that you can't see with seen. the eye. Like a fecal calprotectin, which is the marker for infection mm-hmm. uh, or inflammation. I'll do as well uh, ova and parasite to rule out the giardiasis or something like that. Okay. Okay, this is the main thing for the diagnosis, and I'll be happy if the patient is young and all this negative, so I'll be happy with the diagnosis for irritable bowel syndrome. How long does it take to come to a diagnosis of IBS? Is it weeks? Is it months? If the patient comes to me first time, it will take a few weeks or two weeks at least to do what I told you about. So to get all the tests yeah. done. Yeah, and the, I have to be very careful with the history. I, I spend at least 30 to 45 minutes in the first visit for the patient to be sure that uh, I got every uh, history and everything. And I have to be as well, I forgot to tell you, I have to, to, to know the drug histories for the patient. So once you've come to a diagnosis of IBS, what is your management plan? So if you want to go into the management approaches, do you start with medication straight away? No, of course not. What medication? If the patient is having IBS symptoms and diagnosed IBS and the patient is not affecting his lifestyle, he's managing his problems well without affecting his job, his uh, life, his Quality of life, basically. Every everyday life, we can manage with you (laughs) and the life. Oh, with me. All right, I was gonna say, why me? All right, yes. So a dietitian. So basically, diet and lifestyle approaches first. Okay, so we can uh, do this, but if the patient is not responding, we have to to start. Medication is not the everything, and you have to. To address the patient first, to tell the patient what's IBS, and to establish a good relation between the physician and the the patient, because this relation will give confidence of the patient uh, for his for his doctor. And you know, most of the patient with IBS they shop around. You see many doctors because they are not satisfied with one, they go to the other. So you have to give this patient this confidence. Uh, second point in first visit, many patients, they are got phobia of uh, 
they've got cancer or something. So the, we have to tell them that IBS does not increase the risk of malignancy or cancer. Another important point is to give the patient realistic expectation. You know, IBS is a troublesome syndrome and it is when the patient has got symptoms, he's miserable, he's stressed, he's depressed. I know, I have been there. (laughs) All right. So I don't have to give her uh, or him expectation that I'll give you treatment and hope you are 100% normal. No. And I have to explain to him what do you expect. We have to to discuss the med- the, med- the treatment, the management with him or her. That's why if mild cases, we can go this quality and lifestyle modification and diet with, with a good dietitian. And if we go to another step further, sometimes we give the patient antidepressant, but not antidepressant for depression. It's antidepressant for the motility of the uh, gut. This is, I think, reassuring, you know, reassuring a lot of patients because there's a lot of taboo around, obviously, antidepressants and depression and so on. And we we can talk about, you know, my four-pillar approach and how the mind is important. I told you, I'm not talking about the the management as a whole. First, one one of the important things is the diet. For me, I would say, you know, most importantly, I ask people to keep a food and symptom diary for at least... You know, a minimum of three days and maximum of, of seven seven days, so a whole week, just to see if we can identify a pattern. And generally speaking, what we try to see is not just the yeah. not not the most common gas producing foods. So when it comes to fiber, we all know that the general guidelines is for us to aim between twenty five to thirty grams of fiber per day. But for those with IBS, the how much and the type is very much adjusted to the symptoms. So for me, my role is to establish how much fiber a person needs to address whether they're IBSD, so diarrhea predominant, or IBSC, whether they're constipation predominant. And then we talk about all the different types of fibers that are best used for each type. For 25 and 30 gram of fiber, they should tell me, how can I do 25 or 30 grams of fiber? Yep, this is where I show them a few examples of what 30 grams of fiber looks like per day. So how many grams of oats, how much salad and vegetables, how many nuts and seeds they should be consuming per day, whole grains. So moving gradually towards, a let's say, higher fiber diet. So we know, again, this is for the general population, that we should be eating more fiber. But as dietitians, we are able to explain in practical terms what 30 grams looks like. But in IBS, okay. we really need to be careful that sometimes that 30 grams of fiber doesn't apply to the subgroup of people. So this is where I would say it's highly individualized. Do you need 20 or 25 grams? Are you happy with 25 grams? Because sometimes I find that if I just adjust their fiber intake, the diarrhea and the pain resolve. So I don't need to have to go through any sort of elimination diets afterwards. So it's purely adjustment of fiber. I need to look at alcohol and caffeine. So again, purely because we do know the impact of these two on gut muscle contractions. So we I need cannot to assess- stop caffeine, I'm not to ask, Dad, you don't have IBS, but also, <laughs> I never <laughs> asked someone to stop caffeine. 
I am mindful as to when they should have it and the quantities. So sometimes, again, I've had patients, sorry, clients, I call them in my practice, where I simply adjusted their caffeine intake and they start to notice changes in their stool consistency or the stool frequency. And the other but thing would be that's the standard, that's the caffeine itself. What's the effects on the uh, contraction of or constipation or diarrhea. Does it cause diarrhea in well, clinical not, practice? It I'm not going to say causes diarrhea, but you know how a lot of people find relief after a cup of coffee. So what we are seeing is that, again, based on the science, caffeine is believed to increase gut muscle contractions in your large intestine, yeah. and more intensely, it increases the activity of muscles around the rectal area. This is why so many people claim that coffee stimulates an immediate poo. Like I have to go yeah. right after my first cup of coffee. Yeah, that's what I'm meaning. So okay. caffeine and alcohol, and then we look at fatty food. Again, if people with, let's say, more diarrhea predominant are actually sensitive to the amount of fat in their food. But also that's the other interesting thing. I think you might have mentioned that, Dad, is there could be a misdiagnosis or a very close relationship between bile acid malabsorption and IBS diarrhea predominant cases? That's right. Yes, yeah. There is cases of this, but we have to be careful on this because treatment of this in another uh, another category at all. Okay. I don't, I, as I said, I, we probably just mentioned this term or this condition called bile acid malabsorption, but we can talk about it for a whole different other episode. But... These tend to be the, the first few things that I would look at. So if these haven't, you know, if these been adjusted, but we still do not see any improvements, then I would say it could be worthwhile trialing the FODMAP process. So that brings us to, I know you mentioned the low FODMAP diet, but actually I like to call it the FODMAP process because calling it the low FODMAP diet simply assumes that it is a long-term elimination diet when we know it includes three different phases. Are you familiar with these phases, Dad? Yeah. Yes, that's right. I, I took it from you and I give one lecture about them in short. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> the first phase is the elimination phase, and that's the low FODMAP diet. And the second phase is the reintroduction phase or the challenge phase, where we want to see which FODMAPs or fermentable sugars that are problematic or how much of a specific FODMAP group you're able to tolerate. So establishing mm -hmm. a threshold before you experience symptoms. And then the third phase is liberalization or personalizing it, basically. Do you think our listeners know what FODMAP stands for? I was just thinking, I'm sure if you follow us, we, we talk about FODMAPs <laughs> left, right, and center. Yeah, I tried to tell the patient the, what it stands for. But anyway, they will, it will be it doesn't, uh, complicated. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything to them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so basically, in layman terms, FODMAPs are simply said fermentable sugars or carbohydrates that are resistant to digestion. And what happens is they travel straight to, you know, straight through your digestive system. And what they do when they reach your intestines is that they draw liquid which yes. so so basically liquid into your intestines which may cause tummy pain bloating diarrhea constipation or a mix of both so fodmaps the 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 term stands for things called fermentable oligodiamonosaccharides yeah. and polyols <laughs> as you said <laughs> I always don't care what no. they stand for. 
Uh, now I told them that the FODMAP, this is a material which is present in a lot of food, which is sugar. A lot of healthy food yeah. as well. Yeah. So I think it's really important is... to know it's a lot of yeah. healthy food. And this is why yeah. being in phase two, you should not be on it for more than six weeks. And actually, I try to yeah. keep my clients on it for only two weeks. If they're responsive after two weeks, I start phase two straight away. Yeah, you know that in the American College of Gastroenterology Guidelines in 2020, they recommend limited limited trial of low FODMAP diet in patients with IBS to improve the global symptoms. So it is a conditional recommendation. So it is recommended, but in specific uh, conditions. Absolutely. And it should be, and, yeah. We'll just Google yeah. it and just print it off and don't realize that the FODMAP diet comes with a warning. So for me, what's really important is that it's it's really essential that we highlight the not only the pros of let's say you know symptom control with a FODMAP diet but also the, the cons and it is a very it can be a very strict and limiting diet so compliance and limitation is one thing nutritional adequacy is another because you're eliminating lots of different foods you're at risk of missing out on important nutrients a lot again the low FODMAP diet too is often misunderstood and a lot may think it is a long-term diet we are now seeing that the low FODMAP diet can impact your gut microbes because it is cutting out important nutrients for your gut microbes to thrive. And disordered eating, because it's so restrictive, it can create a very complicated relationship with food. And this is what infuriates me when doctors just print out a sheet and give the FODMAP diet to clients, to patients, because I've seen that happen. Yeah, it, it happens. After this, what do you tell the patient in short? So in short, if someone needs to go through the FODMAP process, I explain, again, setting expectations. So what is it going to entail that I want to test it out for two weeks and then we check in again after two weeks? Maximum is four weeks. I don't think I've ever kept anyone on the low FODMAP for more than for, for actually six weeks. Because there are certain people that are non-responders. And I find, again, this is probably anecdotal, but if they don't respond within two weeks, then it's not a FODMAP problem. It's something else. So we go on the FODMAP diet. They get all the support in terms of meal options, in terms of you know making sure that they're not missing out on any nutrients, supplements if needed. And then what's really important is just following up, making sure that we're seeing them. So I tend to see my clients every two weeks in the beginning, and then it drops off to once every three to four weeks. And then I explain the whole process and what every stage is going to entail. And this is important as well for us. Patient has to be followed up in a, on a regular basis, you know, about every three months according to symptoms. Uh, this is so, a good practice in in summary, I mean, from a dietary perspective, as I said, first line approach is we look at fiber, alcohol, caffeine, fatty food, and any other individual sugar foods, like, for example, lactose. And then if that's still, you know, not the main cause, then I would consider the FODMAP process and go through these different three phases. Okay, that's good. I know we quickly touched, we, we probably just started talking about medications and I probably cut you off, but what are the most common medications used if you need to use medication in IBS? Of course, we have to, as we categorized them before, so IBS with constipation. Of course, with constipation or diarrhea, we have first thing, your contribution with the, the diet. 
for constipation, you know, what to give them is soluble fiber, smooth. And then we can use osmotic laxative. We can uh, use stool softener. Sometimes we combination of probiotic and fiber. This is, and for drug, we have three or four drugs. Some of them available here and some will be uh, approved later on in uh, UAE. All this alter the chronic motility pattern via something called serotonin uh, receptor yeah. stimulation. So I don't want to go in details, but this is very effective and uh, will help the patient. Okay. And uh, for your diarrhea, of course, you will advise them diet, as you said before. And we use, I want to say one name of a drug, lopramide, which is, they use it on the counter. It's called Emodium, which it is used, but I beg the patient not to use it by themselves. Because sometimes if they've got one or two diarrhea, they take two tablets every six hours or something, and they make severe constipation. So it's not right, and it's not advisable to treat yourself. Any drug, even on the counter, should be uh, prescribed by gastroenterology or the doctor. There is another uh, effective drugs which are on, they are approved in the States and Europe, but they are coming here shortly to help people with diarrhea. And as you said before, the uh, bile acid problems, we can use specific, specific drugs which can help patients with diarrhea if they've got this problem there. So this is basically, again, just a quick a quick snapshot bile acid malabsorption in very layman terms is when you have a malabsorption of fat correct yeah yeah that's roughly yes yes that's in layman terms i just don't want to go into detail yeah and the uh, if patient with abdominal pain we use antispasmodics we have two uh, types of drugs we can use them so how would you explain antispasmodics? Are they, you know, in, in layman the, terms? In layman just... terms, they, they, uh, they can cause intestinal smooth, smooth muscle relaxation directly. So they relax? Okay? They relax the, the gut muscle, yeah. So there is two or three uh, tablets, type of tablets, they, uh, we can use them. And one of them as well, pepper, peppermint oil. Yeah, I've used the, yeah, I've, I've used peppermint oil capsules before with quite a lot of my clients too. They the, the are effective, but some people get heartburn with them. Well, again, yeah. risk factors. If they do suffer from reflux or have a history of heartburn, I would not use peppermint oil. That's, that's true. The other problem with the uh, patient with bloating, I think we'll talk about bloating in details later on. So we have to. They can listen, no. I actually spoke about bloating in a separate episode. Actually, the next episode, I believe, episode three, is all about bloating. I have dedicated mm. a whole episode about it. So that will I'm be coming okay. out next yeah. week. <laughs> okay. In few, is it? Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what I, I, I think. And if you, we have to small regular meals. Don't avoid eating during the day uh, or followed by don't eat large large meal, reduce the fiber consumption unless constipated, and don't add excess bran, fruit, or fiber on your diet, Can they can produce bloating. You have to manage your constipation properly, 
regular exercise and plus minus probiotic. This is the, I don't know how, when you talk about it, this is okay or with you, or you want to add something later on? Is that for managing, for managing bloating? bloating? Yeah. Yes. This is in I... short, yeah. Short. That isn't short, and you just you probably summarized my episode. Thank you very much. Okay, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so going back to medication, so it's it's really figuring out what sort of subtype of IBS, and then and another drugs, which is the probiotics. I feel probiotics and IBS can be quite controversial. I was going to tell you that the probiotics are not routinely recommended in patients with IBS. It's not recommended. Some patients, they are already on, on they tell you, I, I will, uh, how about the probiotic? Yes, I'm taking a probiotic for the last three months by themselves. But yeah, no, there, is, there, is, there is growing evidence about the role of this biodis in the gut flora and its role in IBS. So maybe later on, we'll, we'll have a lot of uh, talk about the probiotic in irritable bowel syndrome. Well, I, I actually have given, I think it was a podcast released recently on probiotics and IBS. And as I always tell my clients, you know, treat them like medication. Do not self-prescribe probiotics because it can actually make you feel worse, especially when it comes to the IBS subgroup. And what's really important is it has to be strain specific, meaning you need to know what type of microbe that you're, do, you know, you're using to know what symptom you want to address. And to date, I feel like there are only maybe three or four different strains of probiotics that have been extensively studied to aid in, in symptoms. But again, it's not first-line therapy. I do include probiotics at some point in time for my IBS patients. But as I said, I'm very strain-specific. Well, what's strain-specific? Of course, so if basically, the... if I say strain-specific, I'm talking about, so for example, there's a very famous strain called BB12, that's Bifidobacterium lactis BB12. And this specific probiotic strain helps with straining. So if you take, you know, if you have to strain on the loo, constipation and improves bowel regularity. So it helps you keep you regular. Now, another strain that's known is HNO19. So that's Bifidobacterium lactis HNO19. It helps with tummy pain, bloating, gas, also improves loose stool and bowel regularity. So basically, people, some professionals have no idea that it has to be strain specific. They have, you know, haven't done their research or aren't up to date with the different types of strains and what they're trying to treat. They would just give you, and also probiotic supplements are very expensive. Some of them are extremely expensive and it's literally like pooing your money out. Do you know that in in the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines in 2020, these suggest again is probiotics for the treatment of global IBS symptoms. Exactly, but, but that's what, know, it's not global. Know the but we're talking about specific. On, yeah. So we do know that right now there is enough evidence to support the use of some probiotic strains and not just a multi-strain probiotic when you again when when you're trying to deal with IBS patients. Okay. Okay. So uh, another uh, drugs which. Can use in the IBS, and maybe you will uh, tell me no. The antibiotic? No. No, no. There is there is a lot of research about specific gut specific antibiotic, which I don't want to say the name, but it is proved that it is good in uh, specific cases of irritable bowel syndrome, especially 
diarrhea predominant. So, and another antibiotic, which I don't want to talk about as well, which <laughs> effective if, because I can't, I can't, I don't want to say the the uh, name because the patient are, will go and get it. I don't, I hate antibiotic to be taken just like that. Okay, but it is uh, proved clinically that it helps. So you have okay. So we're talking about specific antibiotics, but again, I, I would probably. It's I think not absolutely by the body. Before. Yes, yeah. I know, but I don't. I don't believe that that should be an option at this point. You know, at I'm not going to say at any point in time. No, it's maybe it's very not, against antibiotics, yeah. but there is certain situations where you would. There are certain, let's say, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There is some enough evidence to support yeah. the use of these specific antibiotics. Yeah. It's not the first choice. It is after treating irritable bowel syndrome, as we said before. Yeah. So, Dad, in summary, because I know we can keep talking for hours, and I'm not sure people want to listen to us for hours, but what would your take-home messages be from your perspective? First, we have to establish a good relationship with the patient. Number two, we have to assess for alarm features and test for celiac disease. We have to consider lactose intolerance, as I told you before, and SIBO as well. It is important in this, just to put it in mind. The lifestyle, diet modification in mild cases, treatment according to the subtypes, either IBS diarrhea or IBS constipation or mixed IBS. And we have to personalize the management. Together with this above management, the, uh, the non-medical treatment like yoga, CBT, antidepressant, all of this should be included as according to the patient himself. Exercise is important. Sometimes some people say hypnotherapy can be helpful and yoga. That's the main thing of the take-home message. And another point is please don't diagnose yourself. If you are not diagnosed, I have symptoms we said before, it's good to Consult your uh, GP, your internist, or gastroenterologist. Don't consult Doctor Google, <laughs> and that's the main. Or social uh, media. Yeah, or social media. So, in your uh, your take home message, Sandra. Well, it's more like messages, Dad. I like to wrap up by just summarizing what my approach as a dietitian working in IBS would involve, and it always involves the four pillars. So the mind, movement, nutrition, and sleep. So when it comes to the mind, I always tell my clients, because IBS is a glitch in how your brain and your gut are communicating, it's really important to start addressing the mind early on in your management. So you mentioned, you know, yoga, and there's also cognitive behavioral therapy, gut-directed hypnotherapy, meditation, progressive muscle relaxation, all, you know, there, there is a ton of approaches out there. And I really think it's important that we seek psychological support early on. Then when it comes to movement, again, depending on the type of IBS we're dealing with, we need to tailor the type of movement. So actually in the beginning, until we achieve symptom control, I advise clients to avoid any high intensity training or competitive running. So gentle yoga, light resistance training, but it really comes down to how you're feeling. But any form of movement, let's say 15 minutes walking daily in nature can help. And then when it comes to nutrition, as I said, we go through the list of 
possible trigger foods. We first adjust fiber. We look at alcohol and caffeine. We look at fatty foods. And then it's indicated. Yes, Dad, I will get to smoking. Please don't jump the gun. <laughs> so if we're still talking about diet, though. So when it comes to the, the, the FODMAP, again, I have to be very careful with, you know, if it's indicative or not. And yes, smoking cessation is extremely important. So I always tell my clients, if you don't smoke, don't start. That's what you always say, Dad. And if you do smoke, yeah. please consider stopping. But I feel, again, some of my clients still smoke, even, but they start to gradually cut down because they're just not ready from a psychological perspective to eliminate everything at the same time. That can be very, very overwhelming. So I think that's also important as practitioners to bear that in mind. And sleep, we do, I mean, sleep is a fourth pillar. And I always say sleep is extremely important to, to control symptoms. Because again, these four pillars, when it comes to mind, movement, nutrition, and sleep, if one is off, it's a domino effect. It will impact all the others. That would be my take-home message. Well, your message is messages. Messages. Think about the four <laughs> pillar approach when you are trying to manage irritable bowel syndrome. And it's not, you know, maybe this is one last question to you, Dad. Do you think we're close to finding a cure for IBS? Cure. You know what cure means? That you don't have IBS anymore. So we'll be out of job. So, <laughs> no, but, not, I don't mean it, but it's very difficult because we don't know the cause, so we don't have a cure. We can manage patient. We have to reassure the patient, and they will live near normal life. It's not impossible to live happy and enjoy food and enjoy your activities most of the time. I know you will have period of problems, but this will will be okay. Well, thank you for joining us today on our very long episode on irritable bowel syndrome. And we hope you join us next time for more chit chat between a gastroenterologist and his daughter. All right. All bye, right. everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastro and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, Make sure you subscribe, follow or leave a review on your chosen platform.